Just outside of Berlin, in the early fall of 1943, a young pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer would look out the window of his prison cell and admire the nature around him. On days when the sky wasn't choked by the smoke from falling bombs, Bonhoeffer cherished his glimpses of autumn flowers and the red-purple leaves of chestnut trees. Bonhoeffer had been in this Nazi prison in North Berlin for six months. Outside of a few minutes of daily exercise and letters from his friends and family, the views from his cell window were his only connection to the outside world. They brought him memories of happier times, of a childhood spent at his family's estate in the German countryside. He wrote about these memories in a letter. In my imagination, I live a good deal in nature, in the glades near Friedrichsbrunn, or on the slopes where you can look beyond Traceburg to the Brocken. I lie on my back in the grass, watch the clouds sailing in the breeze across the blue sky, and listen to the rustling in the woods. Bonhoeffer longed for a day when he could live like this with his family again. That day never came. He would spend another year in prison before his execution at Flossenburg Concentration Camp on April 9th, 1945. He had been imprisoned for his role in bringing 14 Jews to safety in Switzerland. He was ultimately killed for his role in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. This is From Sin to Saint, a podcast from Pathios. In each season, we will take a magnifying glass to the life of saintly figures from all faiths. Our goal is to understand the passions that drove them and the challenges that they overcame on their journey. Over the next four episodes, I will sit down with experts to examine the life and legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a saint whose story has never been more relevant. Though Bonhoeffer is not technically a saint, he's one of just two Christians named as a modern-day martyr by the United Methodist Church, alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Bonhoeffer was a brilliant theologian whose works and story have touched millions. He wrote classics of religious literature like The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. His death at the hands of Nazis has made him a symbol of resistance. Some people might point to his anti-Nazi activism as the key thing for them. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm compelled by that, but I think it's the underpinnings, his theological and ethical underpinnings of, that, of his choices that really resonate for me. This willingness to die for his beliefs has inspired both religious commitment and religious violence. There were a couple of high-profile you know, murders of abortion doctors and bombings of, of abortion providers in which the people who were convicted of the crimes, you know, uh, identified Bonhoeffer as their inspiration. In the decades since his death, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has become more myth than man. His legacy is complicated and contested. He is hailed as a heroic resistor of the Third Reich, yet the World Holocaust Remembrance Center doesn't consider him a righteous Gentile. His mature writings describe an anti-fascist, anti-racist, vision of faith. His earlier sermons are coded with the nationalist language of blood and soil. In order to grasp 
the full weight of Bonhoeffer's legacy, we need to understand the person behind the legend. Who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer? What experiences in his life led him from a comfortable, patriotic German childhood to become a resistor of Nazi rule? What is it about his writings and story that speak to so many people, myself included? I'm Josh Lash, a journalist and historian with a deep interest in faith. I'm one of those people who feel drawn to Bonhoeffer's story. I'm not a Christian, but I can't help but feel a fascination and appreciation for this man who lived and died by his convictions. To me, Bonhoeffer embodied the ideals of service and community that represent the best of the Christian faith. And as a Jew, I have a special admiration for someone who risked his life to fight German fascism. I also see Bonhoeffer's legacy as something of a wake-up call. As I've learned more about his story, I often wonder what his life and legacy call on us to do in the face of injustice. We've got folks thinking about Bonhoeffer's critique of morality as a resource for dismantling mass incarceration. There are folks doing work on Bonhoeffer and climate change, Bonhoeffer and racial justice, and so forth. And what happens if we ignore that call? If we can see past the heroic myth and look at Bonhoeffer as someone who makes those kinds of mistakes and is haunted by them, perhaps, it's what makes him interesting for me, and it's a cautionary note, perhaps, for us. Let's start at the very beginning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 in the city of Breslau, then a part of the German Empire. He and his twin sister, Sabine, were the youngest of eight children in the Bonhoeffer clan. Four boys and four girls. Dietrich's father was the eminent psychologist Karl Bonhoeffer. He was a disciplined man of science. He moved through life guided by dispassionate logic. He was described by one of Dietrich's closest friends as a, quote, firm enemy of everything faddish and unnatural. For instance, he hated the work being done by his contemporary, the upstart Sigmund Freud. He thought it was far too mystical. Dietrich's mother, Paula, was a teacher who dedicated her time to raising the eight Bonhoeffer children and keeping house. In her classroom, Paula Bonhoeffer was a strict disciplinarian. Outside, the children were free to play and explore as their heart desired. She was known far and wide for her skills as a host and a socialite. The Bonhoeffers lived a comfortable, joyous life. Carl and Paula loved their children, and the children, for the most part, got along well, except for the occasional sibling squabble. The family ate together, played together, and even sang together on most evenings. Dietrich would accompany them on the piano. He loved music. In 1912, Karl Bonhoeffer accepted a prestigious professorship with a sizable raise at the University of Berlin. They moved to the capital and used their new money to buy a country home in Friedrichsbrunn, a three-hour train ride away. It was here that Dietrich really found a home in nature. He went on frequent hikes through the glens, sometimes alone, sometimes with his mother or sister. He delighted in the plants and animals that he saw there. Bonhoeffer wrote about his summers in the country in an unfinished autobiographical novel 
he wrote while in prison. We took in the energy of forest and sun, water, each other's company, our family, our native land, and freedom itself as one great gift in the depths of our being. Bonhoeffer would carry this love of nature and these memories of the countryside with him throughout his life. He would turn to them, even in his darkest moments. For Dietrich, there was only one other greater source of happiness in his childhood, and that was his faith in God. It was Paula who had brought religion into the home. Her father had been a church historian, and her grandfather before that was a chaplain to the German emperor. It was important to her that the children be given a religious education. Her husband, the agnostic scientist, tolerated the practice. The Bonhoeffer family's relationship to Christianity was complicated. The children were taught catechism at home, but the family rarely, if ever, went to church. So Bonhoeffer is born into a high-achieving family, not particularly religious, not anti-religion, but just not particularly observant. So they were sort of what we might think of as Christmas and Easter Christians. They attended church as often as good bourgeois, upper-middle-class German citizens would. That's Robert Saller. He teaches a seminar on Bonhoeffer at the Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. He's one of the many Bonhoeffer scholars who will help guide this story. Christian Germans of this era, like the Bonhoeffers, had an almost assumed relationship with Christianity, especially with Lutheranism. In 1906, when Bonhoeffer was born, the German nation-state was young, very young. It had been only 35 years since the Confederacy of German-speaking states unified under one banner in 1871. Most Germans in this young nation-state were connected by a common language and a common Christian faith. There was a sizable minority of Catholic Germans, but most Christians in Germany, including the Bonhoeffers, were Lutheran. Lutheranism is named after Martin Luther, a German Catholic priest in the 16th century. Luther was deeply frustrated by church practices and doctrines. He felt that the Catholic Church had become too concerned with symbols and had stopped focusing on scripture. Among the most intolerable of Catholic doctrines to Luther was the idea that humans could earn God's love through what they did on earth. Luther famously was an Augustinian monk, was frustrated by this idea that he thought he had to be righteous before he could live by faith. Lori Brandt Hale is the vice president of the International Bonhoeffer Society. She teaches on the Lutheran tradition at Augsburg College. He came to this um, understanding that grace is a gift of unmerited forgiveness and mercy, and that there's nothing we could do or say to be righteous in the eyes of God. Luther's formulation that God's love was not something earned by works, but given to all faithful Christians just out of grace, represented a monumental shift in Christian thought. It's one of the founding principles of Protestantism. It's often called the doctrine of justification. This is the declarative doctrine of justification. We are saved by grace through faith alone, and we just declare it. And then, you know, again, the footnote here is then maybe it'll change how you live your life. For Lutheran Germans, the ability to connect their national history with the legacy of Martin Luther, this founding father of the Reformation, was a powerful social force. German national identity and Lutheranism were fundamentally linked for many, and the Bonhoeffers were no exception. They were proud, patriotic Germans. Paula Bonhoeffer and her children's Lutheranism connected them to that identity. 
the fact that they weren't particularly observant didn't change that. Nor did they think going to church was necessary for their salvation. God's grace was given to them just from faith and just by reading scripture. As Luther put it in the Latin, sola gratia, sola fide, sola scriptura. By grace alone, by faith alone, by scripture alone. Even though the Bonhoeffers didn't regularly attend church, Paula's daily catechism captivated Dietrich in a way that they didn't for his brothers and his sisters. He developed an immediate and intense interest in theology as a way to parse through life's biggest mysteries. You can trace his almost a call, if you will, to a very early and deep interest in existential questions. Dietrich was enthralled by questions of mortality and purpose from a young age. Religion provided answers to these questions. In his spare time, he would sit and read leather-bound volumes of theology that were twice the size of his lap. During recess, he and his twin sister Sabine offered imaginary baptisms out of a make-believe church they had set up in the backyard. For the young Dietrich, these existential questions became even more insistent in the face of tragedy. In the summer of 1914, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand plunged the continent of Europe into war. As I said before, the Bonhoeffers were patriotic Germans. When the battle lines of the First World War were drawn, there was no question that they stood on the side of Germany. Dietrich's two older brothers volunteered for the German military as soon as they were able. Walter Bonhoeffer died in April 1918, just a month after going to the front lines. His death shook the usually happy Bonhoeffers to their core. Paula spent more than a month in bed with severe depression. For Dietrich, his brother Walter's death hardened his resolve to study religion. He had found solace in scripture. At age 13, he announced to his family that he was going to become a theologian. His mother was likely delighted. His father and brothers, less so. Here's Laurie Brandt Hale again. When he announced that he was going to study theology, his brothers basically mocked him and gave him a hard time and said, becoming a theologian would essentially amount to a retreat from reality. Look at the church, Carl Friedrich told his little brother. One can hardly imagine a more paltry institution. But Bonhoeffer stood firm. He told his brothers that if what they were saying about the church was true, then he would simply have to reform it. From a young age, Bonhoeffer was not only committed to study theology, he was convinced that he would shake its foundations. But first, he had to be a teenager. In 1918, the same year as Walter's death, Bonhoeffer left his mother's classroom at age 12 and began attending school, or gymnasium, as they called it, in Grunewald, the wealthy suburb of Berlin where the family lived. Bonhoeffer excelled in his academics, and he spent his free time acting in school plays. It was at the Grunewald Gymnasium that Bonhoeffer first encountered a powerful force, one that he would grapple with, both internally and externally, for the rest of his life. That was German anti-Semitism. 
My name is Victoria Barnett. Uh, for 15 years, I was the director of the programs on ethics, religion, and the Holocaust at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in their research institute. Victoria Barnett is also one of the general editors of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer volume of works. She's one scholar who's taken a close look at the Bonhoeffer family's relationship with anti-Semitism. You know, they end up in Grunewald, a very wealthy suburb of Berlin, and they're surrounded by uh, by people who work for the, you know, our civil servants or law professors or whatever. And one of the interesting things about the world in which he grows up is that you have a number of Jews whose families assimilated at some point, and assimilate means simply they converted to Protestantism because of the anti-Semitism in Germany and because they thought that this would open professional doors for them. About a third of the students at the gymnasium, the secondary school where he studied in the early 1920s, were, were from families like this. Barnett has researched and collected the experiences of the assimilated Jewish students that Bonhoeffer went to school with. They remember, you know, other students carving carving swastikas in school benches. They talk about teachers who were openly anti-Semitic. The Jewish students at that gymnasium certainly knew. Um, You know, they, they got the signals. And so Bonhoeffer grows up in this setting in which this is not hidden. This is out in the open. Barnett recalls interviewing a German contemporary of Dietrich's for a book. She asked him about anti-Semitism in Germany at this time. I remember he kind of waved his hand and he said, oh, Frau Barnett, everybody was anti-Semitic. It was part of the air we breathed. This was common and it wasn't, and you found it wherever you went. This helped shape Bonhoeffer's worldview in ways that we can't know about. The Bonhoeffers were not an anti-Semitic family. They had close Jewish friends and in-laws. They opposed hateful right-wing politicians. But there are hints that the atmosphere of prejudice towards Jews at this time was present in their home. When Sabine Bonhoeffer announced her intention to marry a Jew, for instance, her mother Paula expressed concern over the decision. It wasn't that she didn't like the man because he was a Jew, but she was worried how this would affect her daughter's social standing. By that same token, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not an anti-Semite. But at this point in his life, he wasn't exactly an ally either. And so Bonhoeffer, over the course of the 1920s, actually um, is, I would say, further right-wing than his his siblings. Um, Partly this is generationally. So Bonhoeffer is born in 1906. He's too young to fight in the First World War, but he's of that generation that comes of age. Um, during the war. And this was a generation that overwhelmingly threw its support behind Hitler. I mean, this was a, you know, Bonhoeffer sort of describes his generation in the early 1930s as a generation in free fall. Uh, I mean, they, they grow up in the Weimar Republic. They grow up in this incredibly turbulent political period. The Weimar Republic was the democratic government that emerged in Germany after the First World War. By 1918, at the end of that war, many Germans were fed up. Young men like Walter Bonhoeffer were dying by the thousands. Germans at home were grieving, destitute, and above all, hungry. Towards the end of the war, and actually already by sort of 1917, the food supply situation becomes really difficult in Germany. Dr. Nadine Rosal is a senior lecturer in the history department at the University of Essex. She's an expert on the Weimar Republic. By 1918, we have mass strikes and, and, and people demanding 
not just a, a solution to the difficult food situation, but also an end to the fighting. In the fall of 1918, a group of sailors refused to participate in what they considered a suicide mission. This was the spark that turned discontent into a revolution. We see a revolution in Germany uh, across essentially the entire country that eventually then leads to the abdication of the Kaiser. And a few days later, we find that, you know, peace conditions and the armistice is signed. Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated his throne on November 9th, 1918, and a democratic government took his place. On November 11th, two days later, Germany signed an armistice with the Allied powers and surrendered the war. Which for the German population seems to suggest that it was sort of the, the revolution that meant the defeat in the war, rather than the fact that a very sort of desperate militaristic situation actually created a revolution. The newly created Weimar Republic was immediately associated with German defeat and humiliation. A humiliation that only grew when the Treaty of Versailles was signed a year later that saddled Germany with massive debt, loss of territory, and full blame for the war. Versailles was seen as such a difficult treaty because it was so far away from the expectation the German public had regarding a, a peace treaty or any sort of peace conditions, which they assumed would be very favorable and would be really not particularly difficult for Germany. Many Germans began to look for scapegoats, people or groups that they could blame for this disastrous end. Um, and those are always the usual suspects who sort of eventually collapsed and stabbed the bravely fighting German soldiers in the back, you know, the Social Democrats or women or Jewish people. It didn't matter that these groups had nothing to do with the end of the war. They were easy targets, especially Jews, who made up less than 1% of the German population. It was in this environment of rising anti-Semitism and resentment over the war's end that Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent his teenage years. And despite his liberal upbringing, Dietrich was not immune to these forces. In 1923, he joined an anti-Semitic fraternity called Dear Eagle. Here's Victoria Barnett again. Fraternity life in the 1920s at German universities was one of the realms in which nationalist indoctrination occurred. Membership in Der Eagle, which means the hedgehog in German, was based on your proximity to the German elite. Karl Bonhoeffer, Dietrich's father, was a member. It was an intensely nationalistic organization, and it didn't allow Jewish members. That's why Dietrich's older brothers refused to participate. But Dietrich had no qualms. He joins a paramilitary group for a short period. Later that same year, Dietrich enlisted as a member of the UMS Rifle Troop, a quasi-military organization. This group existed in violation of the Treaty of Versailles, which specifically banned any German militias. Today, I am a soldier. We practiced ground assaults and such. It's horrible to throw yourself down on the frozen ground with rifle and knapsack. Bonhoeffer found out that he wasn't fit for military service, but he enjoyed his time in training. In spite of it all, I believe the time made quite an impact on me. The portrait of the teenage Dietrich Bonhoeffer that forms in the early 1920s is of an immature young man who is drawn to German nationalism and seems 
at best, unbothered by the anti-Semitism that came with it. He wasn't the most enthusiastic member of an anti-Semitic fraternity, but he was a member. He spent most of his illegal paramilitary training reading philosophy, but he trained nevertheless. The charge of anti-Semitism would continue to dog Bonhoeffer over the course of his life. It still does to this day. Whether or not he deserves that charge is a complicated question. Like almost everything else in his story. We'll get into it more down the line. One thing is certain. You can't understand the mature Bonhoeffer, the heroic martyr of Nazi resistance, without recognizing the young Bonhoeffer, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, proud child of the German elite. Shortly after his time in the illegal paramilitary troop, Bonhoeffer would experience his first of many trips outside the borders of Germany. It was a trip that would begin to shake him loose from the grip of German nationalism and would refocus his energy back to theology. In the spring of 1924, Dietrich Bonhoeffer went to Rome. Bonhoeffer had set his sights on Rome for quite some time. As a child, he had been captivated by his great-grandfather's account of his trip to the Italian capital. He was set to begin his university studies in the fall and wanted to experience some of the world before getting bogged down in books. In April, he and his brother Klaus left Berlin and headed for Italy. Bonhoeffer recorded his thoughts and concerns about the trip in his journal. It feels strange when one crosses the Italian border. Fantasy begins to transform into reality. Will it really be nice to have all one's wishes fulfilled? Or might I return home completely disillusioned after all? If Bonhoeffer's first day in Rome was any indication, the latter might be true. The city was chaotic. Around seven o'clock, we walked home through enormous bustle on the streets, cars at furious speeds, women with baskets of flowers, and the colorful oil carts juggled through the masses with much screaming and skill. Cars with fascists throwing pamphlets onto the street are everywhere. The later it gets, the greater the turmoil in the streets. But Bonhoeffer and his brother Klaus quickly adjusted to the Italian pace of life. They spent their first few days visiting sites from ancient Rome. The Colosseum was the most interesting. This building has such power and beauty that from the moment one sees it, one knows one has never seen nor been able to imagine anything like it. But it was the Vatican that captured Bonhoeffer's imagination. Dietrich and his brother were in Rome for Holy Week and the aspiring theologian got to see the full splendor of Roman Catholicism. Palm Sunday. The universality of the church was illustrated in a marvelously effective manner. Everyone was in clerical robes, united under the church. It truly seems ideal. Bonhoeffer's journal entries from this week show that it had a profound effect on him. He had never seen anything like it in his homeschooled Lutheran childhood. For the first time, 
he experienced what people meant by the capital C church. It was worship in the true sense. The whole thing gave one an unparalleled impression of profound, guileless piety. This was the first day on which something of the reality of Catholicism began to dawn on me. I think I'm beginning to understand the concept of the church. There were aspects of Catholicism that he disliked. The obsessive focus on confessing your sins was one. Here for the second time, I met a small boy who came with his father to confession. Apparently, he had forgotten something in his previous confession. It could be that his father was raising the child to be an excessively scrupulous person, which is the worst crime one can commit against a child in relation to the church. He also disliked the symbols and the dogma. Modern Catholicism symbolizes what is not comprehensible. Protestantism allows the symbols to fall away at this point. It has fewer traditions and is more honest. Bonhoeffer critiqued Catholicism for much of the same reasons that Martin Luther had. He thought the Catholic Church was too focused on the idea that a Christian earned grace through their actions or by confession. He thought they were more interested in dogma and symbols than they were with scripture and salvation. But Bonhoeffer's time in Rome also led him to critique his own Lutheran upbringing. He admired the universality of the Catholic Church how it seemed to transcend borders and creeds. In a bit of marginalia from his journal, he described German Lutheranism as provincial, nationalistisch, und kleinbürgerlich. Provincial, nationalistic, and small-minded. Before they returned to Germany, Dietrich and his brother made one more stop, this time in North Africa. On a whim, they hopped onto a freighter headed for Tripoli in Libya which was under a brutal Italian occupation at the time. If Rome was confusing for Dietrich, Tripoli was an absolute whirlwind. He was in awe of the culture of the Muslim nation, from the art to the architecture and music. He was also distraught by how the native Libyans were treated by the Italian forces. What enrages me most is that a people like the Arabs, who have such a well-developed sense of tradition and culture, are to be transformed into slaves. When one sees that they are treated with such brutality and vulgarity by the Italian soldiers, one can understand their bitterness and callous fear. Bonhoeffer tried to apply his theological lens to the Muslim faith in Tripoli. He was invited to visit the city's Grand Mosque. He observed the calls to prayer that came throughout the day. He admired the way that Muslims made little distinction between religion and life, a far cry from the German Lutheranism he knew. At home, one just goes to church. When one returns, a completely different life begins. It is thoroughly different for Muslims. Ultimately, Bonhoeffer's time in Tripoli showed him how little of the world he understood. On the ferry ride back to Italy, he wrote that he felt like a, quote, completely empty container. The provincial Lutheran bubble of his youth had burst. Bonhoeffer's time in Rome and Tripoli inspired him to begin thinking of a new vision of the church, one that combined the universality of Catholicism with Protestant ideas of grace and faith 
one where religion became a part of everyday life, like he saw in Islam. The trip also began a change within Bonhoeffer, the man. He began to question the nationalism of his youth. For the first time in his charmed life, he had seen real suffering in Tripoli, and it shook him. Bonhoeffer would come to know suffering intimately over the course of his life. It would eventually become a guiding principle for him, a way to connect with God. But that was years away. At this moment, Bonhoeffer's main concern was getting back to Germany in time for the start of his first semester at the University of Berlin. He barely made it. His train from Italy arrived in the German capital on the very last day to register for classes. 17-year-old Dietrich began his theology program at the University of Berlin in the fall of 1924. Here's Robert Saller again. The University of Berlin, which is at that time probably in the West, the premier theological academy. The University of Berlin had three of the most renowned theologians in the world on faculty, all of them Protestant. And Bonhoeffer learned from each of them in their own way. There was Karl Hull, the foremost scholar on Luther, who shared Dietrich's vision for a more universal Lutheran church. There was Reinhold Sieberg, a conservative and dogmatic thinker who oversaw Bonhoeffer's dissertation. And then there was Adolf von Harnack, perhaps the most widely respected theologian of his time. Harnack was a historian as well as a theologian, and he emphasized church history more than scripture. The faculty at the University of Berlin belonged loosely to the school of liberal theology. Liberal theology at this time was less concerned with religious practice and more interested in finding a place for the church in the modern world. The church on this sort of post-enlightenment academic view is an organization that is preserving the memory of the gospel, but in such a way largely to demythologize it to take out the, um, those aspects of the Christian theological message that would have been seen as overly supernatural, contrary to reason, and crucially contrary to a vision of progress, of moral progress of humanity throughout history. This vision of the moral progress of humanity is known as triumphalism. It's the notion that the Enlightenment set Western civilization and the rest of humanity on an unending path towards human progress. The church needed to find its place on that path. This idea of moral progress conveniently ignored the brutality of European imperialism that was happening all over the world at that very moment, the kind that Bonhoeffer saw in Tripoli. Triumphalism was the rage among academics of all stripes, not just theologians. In a little over 15 years, the Nazi regime would show the triumphalists just how wrong they were. But we're not at that part of the story yet. So Bonhoeffer begins his training studying with the great luminaries of that movement, and he's a prodigy. Bonhoeffer quickly showed that he was a cut above the rest of the students. He was exceptionally bright, rigorous in his studies. He was committed to learning all he could from the liberal theologians, but he wasn't afraid to disagree with them. He disliked their emphasis on religious dogma over church practice. He felt like the figure of Christ and the message of the gospel were missing from their theology. He began to seek out other mentors. In the course of his study, 
he becomes intrigued by this renegade theologian, not far from him, named Karl Barth. Barth was a Swiss Calvinist theologian. Like Bonhoeffer, he had studied under Adolf von Harnack and other liberal theologians. But he is best known for his full-throated denouncement of their approach to Christianity. Karl Barth was one who was already sounding the alarm about the optimism of these liberalizing tendencies within theology. Barth cast aside liberal theology and forged his own more fundamentalist brand. This new theology was focused on the gospel, religious practice, and above all, the figure of Jesus Christ. Barth cut any tie he could find between Christianity, nationalism, and triumphalism. He argued that the kingdom of God was universal, and it was located in the present, not in any imagined future. It certainly did not belong to any one church. Barth's writings spoke to the young Lutheran Bonhoeffer, but they alienated him from his teachers. Bonhoeffer becomes entranced by Barth's theology, and so his writing at the University of Berlin, and that university was largely hostile to Barth's growing influence. Uh, when Bonhoeffer starts writing his dissertations and so on, the general report is, well, Bonhoeffer is still a very talented theologian, but too bad about how he's fallen under the Bardian spell. While under the Bardian spell, Dietrich Bonhoeffer completed his first dissertation in the summer of 1927. This monumental work catapulted the 21-year-old German onto the theological scene. The thesis was titled Sanctorum Communio. It laid out a sweeping vision for how a church community should function. Here's Lori Brandt-Hale again. It's an inquiry into the idea or the subject of religious community. And the conclusions that he reaches in the dissertation are that basic existential, ontological, theological, and ethical questions have kind of an integrated answer, right? That the concepts of person, community, and God are inseparable, that they're inseparably and essentially interrelated. In the dissertation, Bonhoeffer argues that theology is inherently social, that a relationship with God isn't found in individual reflection. It's found in one's relationship with others in the church community. Bonhoeffer sought to flatten the distinction between individual churchgoers and the community. This is how he described it. In God's eyes, community and individual exist in the same moment and rest in one another. The collective unit and the individual unit have the same structure in God's eyes. On these basic relations rests the concept of the religious community and the church. Bonhoeffer even added new terms to the theological canon. And he actually introduces this concept of Stelvertretung, which is now translated as vicarious representative action. German words are notoriously difficult to translate. Stelvertetrung is no exception. It's an idea that shows up again and again in his theology. The basic premise is that members of a church community have a deep ethical responsibility to serve one another. When you encounter another, that other places an ethical demand on you to respond. This demand didn't just exist on Sundays in a pew. It was ever-present. When members of a church community act on this ethical demand, only then does God begin to reveal himself. Bonhoeffer described it as God existing as church community. This is where you get this famous dictum that comes out of the dissertation, Christ existing as community, where he is 
sort of positing this understanding of the church. The church then functions both as the ongoing revelation of God in the world, as well as a concrete community. This idea that community and service to others is important to a church is nothing new. What Bonhoeffer did in Sanctorum Communio was to give these ideals supreme importance among all Christian concepts. It was only through connection to others that Christ came to be in a church. And only then could a church community understand its God-given purpose. Sanctorum Communio was Bonhoeffer's attempt to develop a unified theory of Christian theology. For him, that theory revolved around community. It was a vision of the church that grew out of his own experiences in faith. In his childhood, he had experienced the loneliness of a religion without community. In Rome, he was awed by the power of a centralized church. In Tripoli, he found beauty in a religion that was practiced every day and everywhere. The liberal theologians at the University of Berlin had taught him how to express and defend his theology. His infatuation with Barth had made that theology focused on church practice and the figure of God. In fact, when Karl Barth read Sanctorum Communio in 1930, he called the work a theological miracle. Barth went on to say, quote, I openly confess that I have misgivings whether I can even maintain the high level reached by Bonhoeffer. Sanctorum Communio was approved with flying colors by Bonhoeffer's thesis advisor. He was awarded his doctorate in 1927. That would pave the way for him to begin life as a pastor. For all the praise heaped on the project by prominent theologians, Bonhoeffer still grappled with questions about his vision for the church. For one, where did he draw the lines of the church community? Was it universal? Did it fall along familiar Protestant Catholic fault lines? Or was it based on nation-state boundaries? Bonhoeffer wrote in his dissertation that, quote, there is a will of God with a people, just as with individuals. Where a people submitting to God's will goes to war in order to fulfill its historical purpose and mission in the world, it knows that it has been called upon by God that history is to be made. Then war is no longer murder. Here, the German nationalist current of Bonhoeffer's youth appears. The English word people is a translation of the German word, Volk. It's a term that combines the idea of ethnicity with the idea of nationhood. In a few years' time, the term Volk would become a rallying cry for the National Socialists. To see it used by Bonhoeffer to justify war is disturbing. It cuts against the grain of the man we know Dietrich Bonhoeffer would become, a defiant resistor of fascism, a committed anti-racist, a martyr for social justice. That's because at age 21, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not yet that man. His family had instilled in him a commitment to serve others. His travels abroad had given him a deep respect for the power of community. He was pious, but he was not yet political. In two years' time, across the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would undergo a powerful transformation that would set him on a collision course with the greatest evil of the 20th century. Ob du glaubst, 
dass ich fleißig gewesen bin, dass ich gearbeitet habe, dass ich mich in diesen Jahren für dich eingesetzt habe, dass ich anständig meine Zeit verwendet habe im Dienste meines Volkes. Gib du jetzt dann Tritt für mich ein, so wie ich für dich eingetreten bin. On the next episode of From Sin to Saint, we will look at the most transformative period of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, from his first parish in Barcelona. And he's in this kind of malaise. He actually makes the statement that he doesn't believe that theology can hold him for very long. To his revelatory year in New York City. It's not until he goes to New York that I think he starts to recognize the ways that suffering and the suffering of real human beings in the world, sort of racialized human beings, you know, can shape his theology. And finally, to his first encounters with National Socialism. Bonhoeffer, from day one, opposed everything about Nazism. For Pathios, I'm Josh Lash. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this series, consider checking out Answers, the latest podcast offering from Pathios. Who is the founder of Hinduism? What is excommunication? What are the five pillars of Islam? What is Buddhism? When was the Holy Answers is a show for people who are curious about the world's religions. In this series, Pathios seeks to provide concise answers to some of the most common questions people have about Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and so many more of the world's great religious traditions. You can find answers and our entire podcast catalog on patheos.com or on your favorite podcast app. Check the show notes for helpful links and more information.